Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. I think we need to learn to see stress across a spectrum. Uh, We need to differentiate between good stress toxic stress and tolerable stress. Um, We have to stop painting every kind of stressor with the same brush of toxicity, like, oh my God, I'm so stressed, this is so bad, Um, when really it's just exciting. everyone, you're listening to The Females, a podcast from Career Contessa that deep dives into the world of women, work, and what it takes to build a successful and fulfilling career on your terms. This season of The Females will explore the world of meltdowns and comebacks. I'm Lauren McGoodwin, CEO of Career Contessa and the host of The Females. Today's guest is Amanda Anayate, a cancer survivor, author of Seeking Serenity, and a stress expert. If you've ever looked at the headlines around stress and anxiety, the message is very clear. Chronic stress is on the rise. Experts have even called chronic stress a public health crisis. But what about the research that tells us how we can manage our stress or even turn our anxiety into a positive action? Or even why stress happens in the first place? And is there a difference between professional stress and personal stress? With so many questions about the topic, I was eager to find a stress expert who could actually provide some answers. And what Amanda shares with us is so much more than just facts and practical advice. Amanda's path to becoming a stress expert is a combination of both personal and professional experiences, starting around age 10 when Amanda became a child refugee because of a revolution in Iran, and later when Amanda experienced post-traumatic stress syndrome after she was triggered by 9-11 from her New York City neighborhood. And if life hadn't thrown enough Amanda's way to dispel her sunny outlook on life, she was also hit with a life-threatening cancer diagnosis. That's when Amanda started to write and record a new narrative for herself, a narrative that eventually turned her into the nation's premier stress columnist and expert, a published author, and even launched an entirely new career. On this episode, we'll cover how to stress better and lean into more of the good stress, what we can learn from elite athletes and how they react to stress, and how to develop a better sense of control that you can use in your career and life. Before we move on to the interview, I do want to caution listeners that this episode does cover sensitive content. All right, let's meet Amanda. So Amanda, you had a really interesting childhood. Can you tell us about that and your relationship with stress, which I know started pretty much right away for you? 
Why, yes, I did certainly have an interesting childhood, or rather it started out as your average childhood. I was born in Tehran with my family, my mom and my dad and my older brother. And we were your normal run-of-the-mill family living our normal lives until one day there was literally a revolution out in the streets uh, with people rioting and burning cars and getting up on rooftops and chanting protests in the dead of night. Um, How old were you? I was 10, almost 11. Okay, so you you have some vivid memories of this, though. I do. Mm -hmm. I do. Although it's funny how you blank out so much of the things that happen. So there are definitely some big holes, probably protective holes in my memory. Um, So it got really bad. My brother was already studying um, in the United States. He was a little bit older. And eventually my parents found a way to send me out of the country too. They couldn't get out. Um, They were on a list. They were looking for them. Uh, I first went to Europe where I lived with family and friends. by the end of it, I'd lived in six countries on three continents in five years. So yeah, definitely. So from like 10 to 15, you were not living with your parents, you were living with relatives and yeah. And why did you have to move so many times? I mean, it, it, you know, it maybe wasn't, it seemed normal at the time. Uh, I, you know, people are living their lives and I don't know that people are equipped to take a 10 year old. Um, how many, you know, it has to be an intentional decision and revolutions are interesting times. And I, um, couldn't really find a place to stay longer term. So what happened with your parents? Cause I know you guys eventually all made it to Los Angeles. We did. They got out eventually. Uh, my mom tried to go back and forth a couple of times. Um, and yeah, in the early to mid eighties, we all landed in LA with a million <laughs> other people from Iran. So that was interesting too. I read a quote of yours and you said, um, at some point I lost my compass and my will and escaped to the East coast to attend law school. What did you mean by this? So kind of tell us like where in the time that you and your family came to LA to when you went to the East coast and went to law school, where did you lose your way? Was that it the is, identity part? Well, it's such a really good question. And I gave it a lot of I've given this a lot of thought, and I'd love to give you a little bit of context um, because it's really relevant to this whole idea of career and career contessa. So here I was, a former child refugee, and I lived in a bunch of countries, and I had to learn all these new languages, sometimes in like three months, so I could go to school and take exams and make friends, um, fit into new cultures. And my family and I finally make a home for ourselves in the United States. I'm living in Southern California, kind of an unusual kid. I don't look like a ton of people I know. I have a janky haircut. My clothes are (laughs) off-brand. I like science fiction. I like math. Um, I probably look more like a boy than a girl for some (laughs) of that period. And there really was no blueprint for what any of that is supposed to look like. Like, I had to create that, and I had to be comfortable with the discomfort of every bit of that. But really, all I wanted to do at that time was to be normal. You know what I mean? I wanted a blueprint or a map of how my life was supposed to go because I was looking for comfort. How old were you at that time? Um, This was, you know, teens. Mm -hmm. Teens, early teens. 20s, probably like early 20s, Um, you know, and my immigrant family had brought their own map from the old country. And they were like, listen, here are the options for 
who you can be and what your life is supposed to look like. And as far as career is concerned, you can be a doctor, you can be a lawyer, or you can be an, an engineer. Um, and I'll tell you, right at this moment, every immigrant child of an immigrant family from every Asian country and probably like most of the African ones, they're hearing this and nodding their heads because we're all told exactly the same thing. You have to get an education. You have to be a doctor, lawyer, and engineer because that's the pathway that our families saw. Um, but but I was also an obsessed reader. Um, I was loved writing. Um, I was quirky. I asked a lot of questions. I quoted Star Trek. Um, and I was, you know, like... Yeah, oddly, I was a hip hop dancer. So I mean, <laughs> quite the combo. <laughs> and there's just no blueprint for right. it. And carving out your path is in some ways really exhausting work. Um, parents don't prepare their kids for that. Nobody really prepares you for that, um, for being comfortable with discomfort, for being comfortable with ambiguity. Um, so by the time I went to law school, and I was really young because I I had skipped a couple grades and graduated early. And then what happens? So, uh, I mean, even then I, you know, had like sort of a path, quote, unquote, a path, um, because I wasn't, I was, you know, had the grades to go to big law firms and I went to law firms and I, you know, was a pretty good lawyer, but I hated my life because um, you're, the goal is to, you know, bill 2400 hours maybe it's even more now a year and you're just heads down in the mill in the trenches and in a very different way and there is such a premium on fitting in and being normal and belonging and of course like I was trying so hard to be this sort of person that looked like everyone else and walked like everybody else and maybe I did a good job like 70% of the time and then eventually like my tail would creep out from underneath my suit and I'd be like it'd be like oh my god she's weird she <laughs> so I was trying really hard to pass as sort of like being like everyone else and having, you know, not, not a ton of success. So I left the law firms. Um, I got into this world of consulting. So post law life, you, you decide being a lawyer while you're good at it. It's not for you. You become a consultant. Um, so I know that in 2001, you were living in New York. Yes. Um, and you witnessed nine 11. I did one morning I'm out walking the dogs and the first plane hits and then the second, and we're all, you know, the neighbors and the fruit guy from the corner and the cab drivers and all of us New Yorkers are standing there on 6th Avenue. And we were standing there looking at the towers with the black gashes right across them and they're smoking. And suddenly there's this rumble and one of the towers falls. And then there's a rumble a few minutes later and the second tower falls. Um, and I remember saying to, I don't even know who, did they get everyone out? And, um, yeah, I don't, I, you know, how did I overcome that? I honestly, I don't know that I did. And I don't know that I have, uh, living in lower Manhattan in those days that followed, we were all swimming in soot and building dust and 
people dust and grief and sorrow and disbelief. And I still, when I go back to visit, I still see certain poles and walls and buildings and Union Square. And I remember like every pole and wall you looked at, there were flyers with pictures uh, of the missing and people looking for the missing and all of these makeshift memorials and candles. And, oh my God, I, I, I don't know that I'm ever going to get over it. Um, of all the things that I ever went through, that is the one that's the most visceral. Um, how did I find my joy? Human beings have an incredible capacity for resilience. We get used to things. Um, there was a period where I couldn't even get off the sofa, honestly. And, and you said um, in an interview I read about you, you said that part of why you were struggling after 9-11 with you know post-traumatic stress is because it was it reminded you of the revolution from your childhood so was that something like were you aware that that was something you were kind of carrying around or when this happened do you remember having kind of like this is probably a bad analogy but like a flip or a switch flipping in you where you were like oh wow i i am having this this you know memory or i'm remembering time when i was younger and it's going it's creating something i'm feeling this post-traumatic stress it was, in retrospect, the first moment where I recognized, oh my God, my life is ruled by triggers. Like it was probably the first moment where there was a trigger that it was like a switch flipped. Hey there, let's take a quick time out from today's show so I can tell you about Hint Water, the only bubble-free alternative to sugary and diet drinks that tastes like an amazing piece of fruit. Without making their waters taste sweet, the folks at Hint have crafted over 20 naturally fruit-flavored waters with delicious flavors like watermelon, pineapple, cherry, blackberry, and more. I personally can't get enough of the cherry flavor, and next, I'm going to replace my coffee addiction with their caffeinated black raspberry Hint Kick. Their caffeinated flavors include 60 milligrams of caffeine, zero diet sweeteners, zero calories, and zero preservatives which makes them a great alternative to that morning or afternoon pick-me-up. Hint's CEO, Kara Golden, started the company to help herself get away from diet soda and drink more water. To date, the female-founded brand has helped millions of Americans get away from their addiction to diet soda and helped them fall in love with water. And if you can relate to trying to drink more water but falling short, it's time to consider subscribing to Hint. Pick your favorite flavor or variety pack, Select your delivery frequency every 14, 30, or 60 days and have it delivered to your doorstep. Don't worry, you can cancel or skip delivery anytime. Hint is perfect for everyone, and today you can receive 36 bottles for $36. That's $1 per bottle. Visit drinkhint.com backslash females and use the promo code FEMALES. Again, you can receive 36 bottles for $36 right now by going to drinkhint.com backslash females and use promo code females. All right, now let's get back to the show. Well, and the, the story of yours, I mean, just when I was researching your life story, I mean, I had so many moments where I was like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, um, because you're, st- you know, you, you've experienced a lot of adversity up to this point in your life. And then in 2007, you have another life-threatening event happen where you're diagnosed with late stage breast cancer. Tell us about this. I know that you decided to kind of write through this journey, but like, can you walk us through 
what, I mean, that must've been another trigger. Yeah. So up until this point, you know, 9-11 is mostly behind me. I'm now married, have had kids and they're one and two, like they're babies. My son who wasn't even one, we were still nursing and we've moved to the Bay area. I'm happy, excited about the move. I like San Francisco a lot. I'm nursing my son, but I'm also feeling this clogged milk duct. Like you get sometimes the milk ducts clog and you have to like do hot compresses to make them go away. And this one milk duct is just not going away. Um, mostly I'm so busy with my life that I'm not even thinking about it. And then one week, my mom happens to be in town, so I actually have childcare. So I make an appointment at the local hospital just to go get a mammogram, like, what the heck is going on here? Nothing shows up on the mammogram. Ladies, you hear me that you hear me say that? It was a nine centimeter tumor. That's like giant. That's like bigger than my boob. Nothing showed up um, because some tumors grow flat and some tumors grow in lumps and the flat ones don't really show up and you don't feel them until it's way, way, way late. Oh my goodness. Um, the incredible doctor who was there, who was looking at the mammogram knew that I had said there's something there. She felt it, decided to follow up with an ultrasound and you guys, there it was. It was giant. We found out later that it was late stage and that it had spread. So I'll tell you, cancer was my dark night of the soul. Uh, it was the first time in my life that I thought I was going to die because they were telling me, like, these are the numbers. And after that first time when they told me the numbers, I said, don't ever tell me the numbers, my survival um option like numbers again I don't want to know I don't ever want to hear that number again to this day like that's another thing I've blanked out um so yeah it was so when they got your test results did they like they tell you to come in and bring your husband I mean this this is dramatic no they're like you'll get a call on Friday and you don't get a call on Friday and you're like whatever you know I'm healthy because I was and and I didn't even think anything about it But I think that should have tipped me off, the fact that I didn't call on Friday. I got a call on Monday, and I remember I was in the dining room, and I was sitting, and I got the call, and the person, like, just went straight into it, which is, I'm glad it was, like, you know, was, like, you have cancer. And I had this moment where I felt like the ceiling, like all of the laws of physics changed, and the ceiling felt like it was right next to my face. And... Um, they say that when you hear news like that, that, it literally leaves a mark on your brain. And I could see how that would be. It's like the really weird, surreal thing where like the walls seem to shift and I was like the, the moment slowed down and oh my God, horrifying. So when that happened, I mean, your reaction is obviously you're going to go through chemo and go through treatment. Yeah. So you pick your treatment. Um, well, the first thing I did like at that moment was I got, you know, um, I called my husband and said, you need to come home. The, the, the next thing I did was call my brother and be like, you got to call mama and Bubba because I am not calling them because it, you know, like middle Easterners are freaking dramatic. So all I needed was to manage that process. Um, and then the next thing I did, I remember this, I opened my computer, I opened up a document in word and I saved it as the second half of my life. And I realized in retrospect that I was like, I am going to, in this moment, stake a claim. Like I'm going to draw that line in the sand. Um, and these are literally, do you want to know the words that I wrote? Yes. Like literally yes. in that first thing that I wrote. 
was, you probably wouldn't believe my life. In a certain light, it would read like an encyclopedia of tragedy, revolution, disease, isolation, dysfunction, terrorism, failure, and withdrawal. Before you check out, let me also tell you that if you were to meet me, you may think a sunnier person never lived. And I would repeat those sentences again a year later when I actually began writing a blog about all of these surreal turns of my youngish life. And um, when I started the blog, I wrote every single day for a year for whoever cared to log on and read about it. And in, in writing every day, I tried to make sense of all of it. Like I tried to understand what this beast was and why it was and and you were doing this while you were going through treatment and fighting for your life. Yeah. Yeah. Was it therapeutic? Um, it was important. Uh, it was the first time, um, you know, I now know, of course, having been a stress columnist for years and having talked to like foremost experts of stress and stress research in the world, I now know that there's actually a whole entire body of research about storytelling, narrative storytelling, and outcomes. Um, for me, it was intuitive. I did it because I would have—I was going to explode. I didn't even know, like, I, I really, for the first time in my life, I was... I thought I was going to die. Like I had never before that moment, not even 9-11, not even the world. I never thought I was going to die. Like this time I thought, holy crap, I'm going to die. And so that is what I was doing is trying to stake a claim and take control of my own story. That's incredible. And I mean, and thank goodness you did because you, you survived. I survived and it wasn't that I survived because I was better. It wasn't because I survived because of a mindset. It wasn't like people sometimes come to my book readings and they have had a loved one who really wanted to live and who did everything, who changed their diet, who changed their mindset. And they're trying to get me to help them understand, like, why did they not live? They had young kids too. They, you know, it was like, what happened? And all I can say to that is that there have got, I don't know what, you know, you or the audience believes, um, you know, and I'm not here to tell you what to believe. My hunch is that there are certain things in life that can't be explained in the confines of when you're born and when you die. Um, and that is to say, I do believe in life after death. Um, I do believe in progress of the soul. Like those are the things that help me somewhat understand. So I didn't survive it had, and had I not survived, had I done all of those things and, and not survive, I still feel that I would have won because at that moment, what I wanted to do was take control of my story. And I did, I took control of my story by writing about it, by really examining all of it and trying to make sense of it. And I think that's one of the most important things, whether you're in a life or death situation or whether you've just lost your job and you're trying to figure out like what comes next is the ability to look at the pieces that you have right in front of you, put them on a spectrum and help them and use them to put together the puzzle of what comes next and what you want to come next and what do you go towards. Um, yeah. So, and after that, because of that, did you feel like 
I've survived. I've got to do something because I, I have a friend who had a near death experience and, um, you know, he lives his life completely differently. Now he lives yeah. his life, um, very much with the mentality of you could die tomorrow and you should live life to the fullest. And so I'm kind of curious, like, um, what besides just like behavior wise, what changed in you, but like, what changed, did you have this new calling in life? Did you feel like you had to go out and, you know, talk about your message or share your story, your narrative? Yeah. Like being this really good person. I mean, I was already a little bit Mary Poppinsy because I was just naturally a happy person. Um, so, th- but, but, but I, but I did for like a minute was like, ah, you know, like <laughs> sancti. Um, and not even that long because I also have this very like real streak. There's a, like, I observe the things I'm like the one who'll be like, excuse me, the emperor has no clothes. Like, so I, so I tried to live at this elevated resonance and I do my best still to live at that place. But you know what? I have moments of humanity and moments of rage and moments of joy and all of these things like anybody else. So, um, so I did have that. There's an exercise that they ask you to do in most, in lots of workshops that uh, I've been in and I've run, which is to imagine that you're at your funeral and you want to know what people are saying about you so this is like the literal living of that exercise is you're like holy crap there's my funeral and what do I want to say what what do I am I like proud of everything that has happened and I looked back and I realized that here I I had taken up the smallest amount of the space that I had been given and there was so much more that I wanted to do and I was like I am not I maybe I've got six months maybe I got a year maybe I got like five maybe I have the rest of my life but, you know, I might, I'm not always going to be happy and joyful and like resonating at this high frequency, but I am going to do my best to take up all the space that I've been given and I'm going to work really hard to make other people successful and help them take up all the space that they've been given. So that's essentially my life's work now. Like it did become, it really very much shaped uh, who I would become and what I would go on to do. And I mean, it literally shaped like my career and what came next. And the second half of your life as you wrote. Yeah. Yeah. So you, um, you come away from beating cancer and you became a regular contributor on CNN Health between your unique life experiences and talking with other stress stress experts, um, you started to develop a dramatically different story about modern stress. And I'm really curious about this idea of modern stress because one, I want to know what it means, but two, um, what, I mean, it sounds like we're all living under kind of this stress myth. So can we talk about those two things? What is modern stress and what's this big myth that we're all following? Because, You've made this your life work, but I mean, you must know that as you made this your life work, there's still so many people out there who stress about everything and anything. And And especially now. Especially now. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, So, yep. Here I am plugging at my blog, writing mostly for myself. Um, Quite frankly, not even sure I'm going to make it still. And people start finding their way to it leaving comments, reaching out, eventually a series of three essays that I wrote about cancer and the experience that I had made their way to one Ms. Mary Carter, who was uh, my edit- who was an editor at the time at CNN Health. She was the managing editor. Um, and she decided to publish them for Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Um, 
And a few months later, I remember she said to me, so what would you like to do next? I said, I'd like a column. And she literally laughed in my face as well she should have because every, she was like, everybody wants a column. Like, and I'm, But you know what? I asked. Like, I, That's the other thing is I be, became a lot less free, fearful because I felt like I had nothing to lose. So I was like, why not ask? So she gave me a column a few months later. She changed the course of my life. Um, and so my job was basically to find people who were living, researching, experiencing, like somehow impacting stress in some way. And so I reached out to, uh, you know, obviously researchers at top universities across the world. I reached out to a Supreme Court justice that I knew was a so-called meditator. I reached out to athletes. I reached out to people who trained athletes and helped them get used to stress. Um, people who were designing apps and developing technology for stress. Like in every way over the course of years, I got like a singular experience in stress. And I remember I was doing this one interview with James Gross. Uh, he's a researcher at Stanford, and he's the foremost um, expert in the world on emotional regulation. And I said something like, yes, can you tell me a little bit about how we're living in the most, you know, we're living in these, like the age of anxiety? And he goes, which I had assumed, right? Like, I assume that we live in the most stressful times. Like, that was the assumption that I brought to the table every day. Like, life is so stressful. It's my job to help people understand how to deal with stress. And he said, I don't know that we're living in the most stressful times. He's like, I mean, yes, like, relatively, there are things that make it a unique moment in time. For example, um, there's 24-7 media, like, you probably go to sleep with it right next to your head with the buzzer on and like there's bad news blaring at you and their entire cable networks that are trying to fill wall-to-wall um, programming so they try to have things that are really uh, like interesting and that you can't like clickbait right or even reality shows right like it's a way to get us to not stop watching because we can't because it's such a train wreck and he said but what i don't what i question is that these are necessarily the most stressful times um that began this whole journey where i went back and started reading about like how did we come to define stress the way that we did and you guys that's a whole other podcast in itself but i will tell you that our modern definition of stress the modern definition that i'm so overwhelmed that i don't know what to do and i can't even that <laughs> definition can't even goes back relatively recently to the 1950s to cigarette companies who were trying to um, fight off lawsuits and they were trying to create these narratives about how modern life is so stressful that you need that humanity is ill prepared to deal with it I mean at the time it was men men are Ill, Ill prepared to deal with it so they need ways to blow off steam they need to smoke a cigarette um, and so there's a whole, whole chapter truly that is like a hole that you will go into and emerge like hours later and go holy crap I had no idea but that is a whole story onto itself this notion of modern stress as so overwhelming that you really can't function you and need that help you need help like before that people were like life is hard um 
but that's just uh, life yeah like isn't there a famous saying in buddhism like life is suffering like uh people mostly had talked about adversity as uh, that which does not kill you makes you stronger so there was a very very dramatic shift that you can see across newspapers and magazines and in articles about how suddenly we started to talk about stress in really different ways and in ways that would impact us in dramatic health and also i think they convinced us that we're supposed to be happy all the time so therefore when you weren't you needed you were stressed and then you needed help to manage that yeah yeah so we fell for it they set it up and we've we've been falling for it yeah and i actually now realize like that whole arc of addiction to a notion that then it's like if you really study um was it salt sugar fat is a book that i read a couple years ago about food companies about advertising it's this whole notion of making you feel like you are not well in the world and that in order for you to feel well x has to happen like the reality is people are happy sometimes and they're sad sometimes and they're neutral sometimes and there are moments that the thing is acute and you have to take care of yourself and remove yourself from danger. But for the most part, we have to train ourselves and to be comfortable with discomfort. Um, and because that teaches us lessons about how to be happier and how to be healthier and how to be more productive. That's so interesting. I, l- I love these conversations to where the science of why we talk about stress and how we think it's just something that we have to fight. I love the story of, well, actually it started in the 1950s and it was an advertising campaign. And I I love that kind of stuff because I think it explains one, it explains why that happens, but also that this is something that someone made up. And that means that stress is something that is totally manageable. And I thought, you know, I've had someone say that too, like, um, my grandpa is 95 and he's like, I don't know what everyone is stressed about. Like life is just really not that hard, you know, like in my day, you know, the whole story. And you're like, yeah, life is probably really not that stressful, but it is to us. You know, we, we definitely, um, the, and as you said, the narratives that you tell yourself are very, very powerful. Mm -hmm. And the perception matters and the stories matter and they actually directly impact your, what happens in your body. Mm -hmm. And so that's why it's really important to understand the real story of stress and take control of your own narratives. So the greatest stress myth of all is that stress-free living doesn't really exist. Yeah. And like, you shouldn't be actually striving for that. I mean, I don't know. Sure. You could strive for that, I guess, but there really is no such thing as stress-free living. And would you want it to be? Because if the truth is that, um, that which does not kill you makes you stronger, that adversity is the pathway to becoming a better person and growing like who wants to never grow? Um, I remember reading this article and uh, forgive me if I'm like not quoting it correctly in the New York times about how children of a certain age now or young people of a certain age are so freaking unhappy. And they were trying to get to the bottom of like, why are they so unhappy? And as it turned out, their parents had been so protective um, and so trying to make sure that they did not experience adversity and that their lives were so kind of perfect and free of stimulus that they were like inherently unhappy people. I'm going to find that and send it to you, but it was just this amazing story and I'm like of course and this is it right here like this is why we need to be okay with being uncomfortable now that is not to say that if someone's being beaten they're going to stay in that situation and tell different stories like this is not this it's not about like if you're depressed if you're in a depression if something is going on and it's acute you remove yourself and you get help 
But for the most part, um, there are whole other ways of dealing with like, quote unquote, modern stress. And what uh, that's a great segue into my next question, which is what generates stress? Um, and how do you know the difference between stress that is, um, you know, a, a bad day and a bad moment and stress that is depression, you need help? That's a, which were extreme examples I gave, but yeah, you know, yeah, because there's a, a difference. Great question. So a stressor, in the broadest sense, is any stimulus that knocks you out of balance. It is um, the someone you know honking a horn uh, and you being startled. It's um, someone leaning in for a kiss, and it's you about to go up on stage to give a talk. It's me coming here today. Um, it's all of the things. It's it, it's anything. It can be anything. Anything that knocks you out of balance. Um, the stimulus can be good. It can be bad. Here's the kicker. It can be real or it can be imagined, which opens the door, in my opinion, for asking about the people who play wall-to-wall video games that are like have you in that state of heightened fight or flight for like 12 hours at a time. Like, I don't know if anybody's studying that, but I'd be really interested in like, what's the long-term impact of something like that? Um, or is it that you're so having so much fun and your perception of it is like that it's a blast that it doesn't impact you at all? Like, so, so, um, uh, and and and, uh, and and the key, I, in my opinion, is not to avoid stress, but to learn how to stress better. Um, and I'll tell you, you know, what that means. I think we need to learn to see stress across a spectrum. Uh, we need to differentiate between good stress, toxic stress, and tolerable stress. Um, we have to stop painting every kind of stressor with the same brush of toxicity, like, oh my God, I'm so stressed, this is so bad, um, when really it's just exciting. Um, uh, you know, stress is the bane of modern living, is a story that we've been telling ourselves for only about a half a century. And before that, you know, uh, it, we didn't look at it the same. So yes, stress can be bad, but only a certain kind of stress, chronic toxic stress. The good stress, the life-saving, life-enhancing kind helps you jump out of the way of a speeding car. It helps you... Like adrenaline? Yes. Mm -hmm. Ace a test. Give a fantastic speech. You know, lean into the excitement of a first kiss. Recover better from surgery. There's great research that shows that people who are in a heightened stress level that have short uh, bursts of stress actually recover better and, and so much more. And the third category is tolerable stress and that's the kind that helps you grow and learn and evolve and become the person you were really meant to be and I want to tell you about this one story that I did um, there's a whole company there are many companies but I interviewed one here in LA that works with the most elite athletes in the world and um, they train them to become better athletes I'm talking about like Olympians NBA player like every, NHL players everybody and I went in and interviewed the people that work with them. And you, this is how you it broke down. I realized that elite athletes actually get better by willingly moving themselves into stress. Um, they move into stressful situations and then learn what to do when they're there so that they can test their limits and then practice responding to it. Um, they make themselves uncomfortable and they stay with that discomfort in order to perform better and they're the best athletes that we have. 
I think that's such a fascinating example. Well, and if we bring it into the workplace, it's, you know, take the assignment that is going to push you or stress you are usually the ones or, you know, the assignment to get up in front of the entire company and present those stress you, but those are the ones that push you for the next level. Absolutely. Absolutely. So we're basically, we're all incredible athletes (laughs) using the same methods. (laughs) I mean, so I took the test Mm -hmm. and I realized this was really interesting that I, um, there's a test that they give you to understand like what kind of a stressor are you? And then how do they begin to train you? And I was incredibly resilient up until this super, super high threshold and performed better than most people. And then I hit this one spot and I collapsed and I was worse than most of the population. So like, I now know that when things get really, really bad, I will fall into a fetal position where most people will still be able to keep going. And so for me, I've been working really hard on like, where is that level? How do I not get there? What do I do when I do get there? Um, it's really interesting thinking about what kind of stressor, like how do I stress? What kind of stressor? Well, I think that's really interesting too, that you're able to, I, you could identify a li- what your limit is. I wonder for those of us that don't have access to this incredible facility, um, how do you think, you know, us regular ladies out there could do that? Would we be writing it down and then maybe start to recognize a pattern? So then we would say, okay, I know when I get to this point, I'm at a level of where I need to step back or. Um, There are two exercises that are in my book and I love these. And I did them by the way, in the first like month after I got sick. Um, and your book is Seeking Serenity. Seeking Serenity, um, the new, I think it's the 10 new rules for health and happiness in the age of anxiety, right? The age of anxiety. Um, so the first one is that I got a really long piece of paper and I drew a line on it and I put down like markers of time. I saw it as like a line of time and I put down markers for like the, the most dramatic things that had happened to me, like dramatically good or dramatically bad. And I kind of had that, I put that aside. And then the other thing is I sat down and I wrote down all of the things that I say about myself. Self-talk. Yeah. Big time. Mm -hmm. I'm scrappy. I'm, uh, lonely. I have no one. I'm weird. I am smart. I am a good friend. Like all of the narratives, like I tried to collect every bit of story that I tell myself in my head. And I tried to like, look at when it was in that moment of time that I actually came to that story. Right. Um, and it was one of the most powerful exercises that I've done because I realized that I began to really identify my triggers and, and this matters at work. It matters in meetings. It matters in my relationship. It matters with my kids. It matters like out driving in the street and someone says something and you just lose your damn mind. Like there are things that trigger us. And the more we know what they are, the more we have mastery and we can insert a moment between what happens and the way that we react to it. And that's control. Like that is freaking control and control and your sense of control. Even when there's nothing that you can do about it, the way that you choose to react in that moment, that is the most powerful thing about stress. And there's also a whole body of research about perception of control and how well you fare when you go through something really stressful. Um, so I want to know what's next for you and your career. You've been a lawyer, a consultant, uh, a published author. So yeah, what's next for you? 
right now I'm working with a company that I love. Um, it's the 3% Movement, and most people know us through the amazing 3% Conference. Uh, shout out to the amazing uh, Kat Gordon uh, and uh, Lisa Stromberg. To, um, and the company helps uh, mostly agencies, but also media companies and tech companies um, to create company cultures that are inclusive, where everyone feels that they belong. And because they feel like they belong and they're a part of it, they bring their whole selves to work. They bring their joyful selves to work and they do some of their best, most creative, most innovative work. Um, so that's, that's, oh, and I'm working on a, on a new book about abundance thinking. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Amanda. And then, um, can you let the listeners know where they can find you online? If you're on social media, I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Instagram, and you can always write me at Amanda and at gmail.com. And your social handles are just your name at your name. Yeah, if you Google Amanda, um, yeah, at Amanda Anayati, E-N-A-Y-A-T-I on Twitter, um, I think I've the only Amanda Anayati. I'm sure you're on, a very unique name. <laughs> on Facebook and Instagram, yeah. Wonderful. Well, thank you again for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much. That was Amanda Anayate, Head of Culture Innovation at the 3% Conference, stress expert, and author. Thank you for listening to this episode on The Females. For more interviews and career advice from incredible women, check out careercontessa.com. We also offer other great resources like a curated job board, profiles on female supportive companies, and on-demand career courses in our e-learning library. Seriously, we are a one-stop shop for your career success. And if you're looking for some one-on-one advice for your career and life, check out Career Contessa's career coaching service called Hire a Mentor. Each coaching session is personalized to exactly what you need to move your career forward. And we have over 50 mentors for you to choose from using the link in the show notes. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. And I'd be so grateful if you could rate us and review us. I read every single review and it's really helpful and valuable to see what you like about the show. And don't forget that we're super social over on our Instagram channel at Career Contessa. And we'd love your help spreading the word about this podcast by mentioning it on your channels with hashtag the females podcast. You can expect a new episode of the females podcast every Tuesday, and you won't want to miss next week's episode featuring Paige Adams Geller the founder behind the namesake lifestyle brand Paige, the first female denim founder, and a woman who overcame sexual assault trauma to build a life she loves. To a point where I was attacked in the workplace on a modeling job, and it was something that really took me down to the bottom of the barrel. Like, I didn't know what to do with that. I I sat on my bathroom floor and cried for a couple days and felt like I got to get out of this. I need some help. I need to figure out what to do next. And I don't even know where to go.